All right, well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. And uh, the passage was already read, which I'm thankful for. Um, I enjoy reading it right before I teach as well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. Um, and I also like to give uh, the main point um, right before the passage is read. That way, while the passage is being read, um, you kind of know where, this, where things are going a little bit. Um, do we stand here when we read God's Word? Should we? Okay, let's do it. Let's stand. <laughs> I should have asked. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll, I'll start uh, back in verse 18, like Mike did, um, and as we get into this, we'll give just a little bit of the context, but here's, a, here's the title for this morning and, and the main idea. If you're a note taker, uh, here it goes. The title, simply, brought to nothing, given everything. Brought to nothing, given everything. Here's the main idea I think we need to get from the text this morning. The wisdom of God makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard of boasting. The wisdom of God makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. So keep that in mind as we, as we read here, starting in verse 10 of chapter 1. 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... That all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me, this is Paul writing to the church, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, you could say through its own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who do believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, here's the passage that we'll focus on this morning. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. Things that are as nothing, you could say. To bring to nothing things that are, so that human beings, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the Word of God. Uh, you may be seated. So again, the, the, main pass, the main point I think we need to get from this morning's message is that the wisdom of God makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into explaining this text this morning. God, we look at a wonderful passage like this that is before us this morning, and it reminds us of how worthy Christ is of our boasting. God, we love to boast. We, we boast in many things, ourselves being chief among those things. Maybe our abilities, our talents, our wealth, maybe our sense of self-righteousness, Lord. We love to boast. We confess that. And we misplace our boasting so often. And God, your wisdom is so much greater than ours. The, the reasons you give for, for true boasting are so much greater than our reasons that we could ever come up with. God, I pray for Grace Bible Church this morning. Make this, continue to make this church a boast, uh, a church that boasts in Christ. Make it a, a unified church that boasts more and more in Christ alone. Make it a church that boasts in Christ within its individual members and in their own lives, with, within its families, in the workplace, relationships both with believers and unbelievers and as a body as the body of Christ Lord make it a church that boasts in him and his glory God remind us this morning how gracious you've been to us how kind and good you've been to us by giving us Christ as we come to your word remind us how much you've forgiven us your grace has overflowed to us Lord remind us how you've brought us into your family for those who are in Christ here. You've brought us into your family not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we contribute, not because of anything we have to offer. It is all because of your goodness and your kindness and because of your Son. So God, use your word this morning to encourage and strengthen your church, we pray. Amen. Well, I've, I've come to appreciate the band City of Light. I think you guys sing a few of their songs here. In fact, I know you do. Mike, Mike mentioned it on Wednesday uh, when I met with he, um, he and Shannon. Um, one noteworthy song of theirs that I, that I enjoy is Good and Gracious King. Are we singing that this morning? Okay, that's what I thought. Good and Gracious King. Maybe, maybe this sermon could, could help, this passage could help to prepare you to um, engage with that song a little bit more uh, when we come to it. But here are a couple lines from that song that I really enjoy. You deserve the greater glory, speaking to God. 
Overcome with joy, I sing. By your love, I am accepted. You are a good and gracious king. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice. To the king in need of nothing, empty-handed, I rejoice. Grace Bible Church, if, if you're going to grow in being a unified church, as you are growing already, if you're going to grow in being a unified church, we need to be a church that remembers that Christ deserves the greatest glory in our lives. In my life, in your life, and among the nations. If you're going to grow in unity, that's what we need to keep as our boast. And if any church is going to be unified under that conviction that Christ is to be our boast, it will need to learn to come to the throne of our gracious King empty-handed and rejoicing that we can come to Him empty-handed. So we need to continue to learn that even this morning. Well, the passage we're in this morning, uh, it's in kind of the second stage of proving how God's wisdom makes disunity unthinkable. Second of maybe three stages. That's just my way of saying it, but if you were to look at previous passages and then the ones to come, you'd see what I mean. So maybe just as I'm uh, giving you a little bit of the context here, skim over the verses that I mentioned so you can see what I'm talking about. And I realize I have ESV, and you guys might do something different here. Um, but here's, here's kind of where the passage falls in the rest of the context. It's in the second stage of proving how God's wisdom makes disunity unthinkable. Skim over verses 18 through 25. You could say those verses show that the wisdom of God... They show the wisdom of God as it is proven in the message of the gospel. The message itself of the gospel proves the wisdom of God. Okay, so maybe that would be the first section, just before this one. The second section that we're in this morning. It shows that the wisdom of God is proven in the recipients of the message. Those who embrace it and believe it and walk in it. The wisdom of God is shown in the recipients of the message. And then verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 show that the wisdom of God is proven in the preacher of the message. The wisdom of God is proven in the preacher of the message. So the message, the recipients, and the preacher of the gospel all prove the wisdom of God. And we're talking about being recipients of that message this morning. And the reason Paul finds it necessary to lay it out this way is because of the first issue he addresses in, in the Corinthian church. It's the issue of disunity, which is found in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 1. The issue is disunity. And the sort of disunity he's addressing has to do with differences in preference and opinion, really, that the church members were having. They were disagreeing over and picking sides with who their favorite preachers were their favorite teachers, their favorite instructors in, in theology. There was disunity because the church members were putting their confidence and their identity in the wisdom of man rather than in the wisdom of God. Paul then told them why this is a bad idea. Why does that sound like a bad idea, Corinthian church, Grace Bible Church? Why does that sound like a bad idea? Why is that wrong? It's because of verse, what verse 17 says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words with eloquent wisdom. Specifically, Paul is saying, I didn't come here with eloquent wisdom for you. To be, to be impressive. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Why is it dangerous to pin our identity and our confidence on man, man-made wisdom, earthly wisdom, because it threatens the, 
the glory of the cross. Not that we can actually take away from the glory of the cross, but certainly it would be a distraction. So essentially, if we're choosing what message we will receive based off of who is speaking and how well they speak and how entertaining it is and how engaging it is, how impressive and intelligent the speaker is, if we're doing that, we're risking the cross of Christ being emptied of its power. Especially if, as we're doing that, we're also determining how true or believable the message is based off of those things. How impressive is this person? How intelligent does he seem? Uh, How even funny he might be, whatever it might be, or how culturally relevant, uh, relevant he might be. If we're, if we're looking at those things and then basing how much we believe the message they're preaching is believable or not believable off of those things, then we're threatening to distract from the glory of Christ. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so what you would notice if you read through chapter 1 is this. Paul doesn't take it upon himself to say, no, 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 you guys, listen, it's Cephas. He's, he's the best, obviously. He, he doesn't do that. He's not concerned about that at all. He's not concerned about helping them pick the right side. He doesn't care to help them really determine who's the smartest, who's, who's the most gifted orator, or whatever the case might be. He doesn't give kudos to anyone in particular for anything. Instead, what's he most concerned about? He's most concerned with helping them see that their boasting is completely misplaced completely misplaced. Their confidence is misplaced. Their, their identity is misplaced. And he wants to show them something better. Something far better. He wants to give them a unified standard for boasting. Because as it turns out, the Corinthian church was operating quite heavily on an unreasonable standard for boasting. Which would be a major cause for disunity, wouldn't it? We need to take this seriously. As a local church, you need to take this seriously, as do I. Churches tend to think about unity or disunity only after it's been threatened or ruined. Churches tend to only think about how important unity is only after we've realized too late that we don't have it. So we need to get ahead of it. And you guys need to continue to get ahead of it as you are. Brothers and sisters, Christ died and was raised from the dead for the unity of his body. For the unity of the church. That is why he died and was raised from the dead in major part. Did he die for our sins? Yes, absolutely. But he died for our sins so that we could become continually purified from our sin for maximal gospel effectiveness as a church, as a body, as his body, and a unified body at that. And the way a church grows in unity is when it delightfully makes its boast in Christ alone. When you're content with only boasting in Christ and saying, he's all we got to talk about. (laughs) He's all that matters. That's how our church grows in unity. Think about it. Even if major doctrines are agreed upon, Even if philosophy of ministry is agreed upon, if theological systems are agreed upon, what good does any of that do if none of it results in a greater boast in Christ? If it doesn't cause us to instead boast in in the knowledge, not our knowledge of Christ, but the the content of the knowledge, the, the object of the knowledge. 
What good is any of that if it doesn't cause us to boast in Christ? What if the, the flow of unity that should come from all of this agreeing is clogged up by, by the bottleneck of, of self-sufficiency or arrogance or being puffed up? That's a big problem. So instead, let's see the better option. Let's be encouraged toward a better option. Let's see how the Apostle Paul wants us to arrive at a unified standard for boasting in our passage this morning. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. We'll do it with three proofs. Three proofs that God's wisdom makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. Three proofs. God's wisdom makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. Here's proof number one, found in verse 26. So again, as we go through each of these, maybe skim the verse real quick as we get into it. But proof number one, your calling proves God's wisdom. Your calling proves God's wisdom, verse 26. And we can think of calling here as the time where God effectually and finally draws a sinner to himself. Where where he... He has determined who it's going to be, and then the call is finally when he reaches out by his grace and says, all right, you're coming with me, and the believer comes. Think of that as the call. Read verse 26 with me. Well, maybe not out loud, but you know what I mean. <laughs> For consider your calling, brothers. It's the only command of the passage, by the way. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This is the third time Paul has used the word call just in this chapter. Bounce over to verse 2 real quick. He addressed them as those who were called to be saints. Called to be saints with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 24, he told them, that while the cross is folly to those who would reject it, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For those who are called by God, they see the message of the cross as power and wisdom. That's how they perceive it and receive it. And so now here in verse 26, Paul bids the Corinthians to consider how there is proof of this power, there is proof of this wisdom in their very own calling. Grace Bible Church, there is proof of God's wisdom in your very own calling, individually. Your individual lives, and and God, if you are in Christ this morning, His calling upon your soul and how He drew you to Himself, there is proof of God's wisdom and His power in that. Paul is proving that the cross itself is the power of God. And that this power comes from a greater wisdom than the world could ever stir up, though it tries. And no, this isn't the sort of wisdom that you might think of necessarily uh, when you hear the contrast of wisdom and foolishness, maybe, maybe in the book of Proverbs or something like that. We might see that in the book of Proverbs. We do see that in the book of Proverbs. It's not necessarily talking about that kind of wisdom. This is wisdom and, and foolishness, contrasting wisdom and foolishness on the level really of determined Determining human worth, human intelligence, human usefulness. The wisdom of God outweighs the wisdom of man when determining these things. Someone's worth, someone's usefulness, someone's value. So Paul is proving that the extent to which this powerful calling has an effect on a person's soul, it's, it's not dependent on the world's standards of wisdom. The extent to which 
this calling has an effect on a person's life is not dependent on how the world's standards apply to that person. The word standards of wisdom and foolishness. And so in the same way, the extent to which the cross has an effect through a person's life, not only on a person's life, but through a person's life, is not dependent on how much the world's standards of boasting apply to that person. It's not dependent on that. It's dependent on the wisdom of God and how that plays out. In other words, there is not a single Christian on the planet in Nevada, in the Czech Republic, in Spokane, Washington. There's not a single Christian on the planet whom God called because he saw them and thought, oh, they've got something special. I I need them in the trenches with me. Because if I don't have them, I don't don't know what's going to happen. There's not a single Christian he said that about. (laughs) Including myself. You know, we'll see why he calls anyone at all in, in just a little bit. So Paul bids the Corinthians to consider their calling. That's the main command of this passage. He gives them some options to choose from when he does that. Consider your calling, believers. Were you like this when God called you? Were you like this when God called you? What were you like when God called you to himself? And as he does that, the options he presents to them are fleshly, man-made standards for that calling. Were you like this? Were you like that? What were you like? What are the things, the options he gives them? They're mentioned in in verse 20. Were you wise? Were you like the scribes? Were you like the debaters of this age? Maybe, Maybe your translation uses slightly different words there. So if it does, you could just think of the wise being the philosophers of the time. Were you like them when God called you? The philosophers of the time, the ones that are kind of determining the the wave of the culture and how it turns and where it goes? Were you scribes? Were you like the scholarly writers of the time? Were you being published? Were you on all these websites that you could be published on or in the libraries? Was this you, believers? Were you like the, the scribes of the time? Or the debaters? You could think of the impressive orators and the politicians and the teacher, teachers. Church. People in the church, were, were any of you like this? Were you the impressive ones? Maybe some of you were. I don't, I don't know most of you. Maybe you, I'm sure there's a lot of impressive people in this church. That's not what, he's, that's not what I'm, I'm trying to argue for or against. He's saying, as a whole, generally, we're not called because we do or do not fall into these categories. That's not why God calls us. So now in verse 26, Paul sort of answers his very own question that he asked in verse 20. Where, where are these people? Where are these people among the called of God? Then he points to the, con- the Corinthian congregation. And he just tells them, by way of rhetorical question, not many of you are like this, Corinthian church. This doesn't describe you. I don't know. Grace Bible Church, maybe, maybe this describes you in some ways. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, more literally the, the flesh. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Well, what are you getting at, Paul? <laughs> what are you trying to say to me? Is he trying to be offensive? Is he trying to make us feel bad about ourselves? And No, of course he's not. He's just being very literal and very practical. That's all he's doing. He's trying to show that the reason they were able to receive the message of the gospel And if you've received the message of the gospel this morning, the reason you were able to do that, to receive it with clarity and conviction and understanding, has nothing to do with your intellectual abilities. 
period. It doesn't. So he says in verse 26, again, not many of you were wise, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. The wise, the powerful, the, the, those of noble birth, these are the kind of people that, that even our society is looking to for new psychological and philosophical and scientific and political insights into the current existence of man. These are the type of people the world looks to for that kind of insight. Not many of you were powerful. This just means influential. Maybe think Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, those kinds of guys. They're influential. That doesn't that that caliber of person, that type of person, doesn't describe many in, in, in God's church. Not many of you were changing the tides of the culture like these guys are. Not many of you were growing a following. Are you, Mike? Are you growing a following? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> he doesn't even know what that is. <laughs> but that's 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 that's, that's the point. Not many of you are growing a following. Not many of you are popular, except maybe for, I don't know, I don't even know what the exception might be. Not many of you are making an, an impact on politics and socioeconomics, these kinds of things. How many of us have been quoted by all the best podcasters? Not I. <laughs> I haven't. So in a sense, kind of sarcastically, Paul's kind of saying, you all haven't been very influential around here, have you? In a worldly sense in an earthly sense, right? Very few are from such power and influence. Another angle he, he takes it from is not many of you are from noble birth. But another way, not many of you have a proud pedigree. You don't necessarily belong to a proud ruling class that you can fall back on for your influence, right? Again, I don't know. Maybe there's someone in here who has a proud pedigree. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> So the sum total of all these things he's describing, and he's just trying to call the church to consider, is this you? Does, do you? Do you really think this might be the reason that you're with Christ in the first place at all, period? The sum total of it all, he's just saying, among all these descriptors, not, not many of you were among the elite Christian church. You're not those who set the standards. You're not those who run the economy, who determine who succeeds and falls. That's, that's not us. No one's looking to us <laughs> for those things. No one in the world. The point he's getting at, again, when the cross of Christ is proclaimed, these are not the type of people that come running, typically. These are not the type of people that come running. He's not saying they're excluded from this message. He's absolutely not saying the the rich and the wealthy and the influential and whatever the case might be. He's not saying they're excluded from this message. He's just saying, on the whole, these aren't typically the people that come running to the church and to the gospel. It's just not. And his concern was for the Corinthian church was that the values of the culture in which the Corinthians lived had, had inched its way into the church and it was creating divisions like, like water into a cracked foundation. It was seeping in and, and slowly over time separating things and causing destruction. And he was concerned that they too, like the world, were becoming a kind of people who measured the value of their lives by how they compared to some sort of special class of people. And the way this was happening was when the Corinthian church, it seems, would look at their own spiritual leaders and then they would bandwagon with whichever one had the sort of charisma that the world would respect. 
And I thought maybe this would give them reason to boast. But there's a problem with that. (laughs) A boastful attitude, whatever, whether it's about who you identify with or whatever the other potential object of your boast might be, a boastful attitude is guaranteed to breed disunity. Guaranteed to breed disunity. It will. Because once, once I've elevated myself above you, or once you've elevated yourself above me, then pretty soon any so-called act of love, any so-called act of service, any so-called act of generosity, whatever it might be, becomes just that. It's just an act. My goal is no longer love. If I'm elevating myself above you, my goal is no longer faithfulness. My goal is me. Pretty soon, whether we're boasting externally or internally, whether it's openly expressed or we just have this perpetual internal desire to be noticed or acknowledged, whatever form it takes, boasting will forge a crack between us and any, any genuine love that could exist between us. That's what it's going to do. None of us are, aware, are, none of us are unaware of how this plays out. We've all been a part of it. We've all contributed to it. We've all experienced it toward us. We're all aware of how this plays out. So let's apply this first point. And I'm camping on this first point the longest because it is, again, the main command of the passage. And he does say, consider your calling. So let's consider our calling, Christians. That's what Paul tells us to do. It's, it's the main command of this passage. So I'm going to camp on it just a little bit longer. Think back to your salvation. Think back to your calling. Was there anything in you which made you respond to the call of God on your own? Anything in your level of knowledge, expertise, intellect, whatever it might be. Was there anything in you that made you able to respond to God's calling? Did you understand the simple message of the gospel better than the next person because of anything in and of yourself? You need to consider that. Or... Or was it more like just one day, in a sense, belief just happened to you? <laughs> I've been hearing this for, for years, and it hasn't meant anything to me. And then all of a sudden it means everything to me. And it just happened to you. <laughs> because God called you, and he drew you. And he said, you have no choice. <laughs> I've already called you. <laughs> can you relate to that? I hope, I hope you can. Is there a choice that we make? Absolutely. But God is the one that makes it happen. I think, in theory, the little bit that I know of of the members here, in theory, maybe these outward forms of boasting that that you might have in your mind, um, or even that I might have in my mind, maybe they're not the ones we struggle with the most. Um, Maybe they are, I don't know. But probably where we struggle the most is in that, that quiet place of our heart, so to speak where we think wrongly about these things, even in really mundane ways. So I want to I help us think about that for a second. I'm going to get in your kitchen a little bit here. I might offend you. Please keep loving us. I'm just kidding. <laughs> not many of you were wise. Not many of you were of noble birth. All these things. Why might, why might we need this reminder? Maybe we've overlooked some outward forms of boasting. Are any of us above that? No, maybe we've overlooked some outward forms of boasting. It's, here's some potential things we might be overlooking. 
Outward boasting, what might it look like? It could look like that attitude that thinks, man, if they only knew what I knew, they would be better off. It's the sort of attitude that that could say, yeah, they'll get it one day. I know I've figured it out, and they'll get it one day. They'll be where I am sometime. Right? Another form could be anger. Perhaps you get angry when you're corrected or sin is addressed in your life. Guilty as charged. (laughs) I am a prideful man. Someone else in your life addresses sin, and and you might respond in anger because we think we're so wise in our own sight. It's offensive that anyone would think differently. How dare you think that that's me? (laughs) That I would struggle with that? That that would be my intention? Never. It's a sort of boasting that makes sure others know just how different you are from the rest, how unique you are, how extra useful you are. I don't get why people think blank is such a big deal. Here's how I think about it, and things seem to be working out fine for me. See, it's, it's nuanced, isn't it? And I'm, again, I'm saying, like, just from what I've experienced among you so far, I don't think you guys have the explosive <laughs> forms of boasting that you might first think of when we think of, okay, don't boast. And so I'm trying to get a little bit deeper for my sake and for your sake to cause us to let us let God's word challenge our hearts. Whatever it might be with without saying it or but but with saying it, among any of these things, you've kind of said, look what I have to figure out that everyone else is still stumbling over and hung up on. That could that could be anything. I'm not trying to get specific. Okay, then it says not many of you were powerful, not many of you were influential. Outward forms of boasting. What might this look like? Maybe outwardly expressing when we think we deserve recognition for something we did. This could take the form of maybe passively, passive-aggressively finding a way to get someone to notice something you did. That could be it. It could, be, it could take the form of getting mad when you're not noticed that, you know, that, that should have meant someone to, something to someone. I put together that event. I, I served my neighbor in this way. I made this meal for this family. And, and whatever it might be. I should have gotten more recognition for that. It could come in that form. Maybe some other inward forms of boasting. This could be one. If people really knew my family, they would understand we're way different than everyone thinks. If people knew all the good we did, all the things we were involved in, they would be looking to us for marital advice. They'd be looking to us for homeschool slash private school slash public school advice. They would be looking to us for financial advice. If they just knew what my family was like, these might be things that come into your mind. Jared, knock it off. (laughs) This hurts. By the way, these are just things that I've thought of because I've done each of these things (laughs) and have struggled in these ways. And they might seem like minor forms of boasting, right? They're not the explosive ones. But they do reveal that we think something about ourselves very often that isn't warranted, don't we? That we're just fine. We're better. We, we, don't, we don't need what others need. That could be in an instance, in, in a moment, just in a quick decision made on a whim, or maybe it's characteristic of you. It could go either way. And before we write any of these off, we should answer the question, what's going to cause greater unity for the church? Writing off these smaller sins, smaller sins, 
right? Quote, smaller sins. What's going what's to cause greater unity in the church? Writing off these smaller sins or understanding no sin is too small to confess and repent from. No sin is too small to confess and repent from. Imagine if, if we didn't think that way. And pretty soon we become character, characteristically sinful in these ways because we thought they were doing nothing but they're a small crack in the foundation that you probably won't see for the, a couple of years. But when you see it, it's too late. <laughs> so right now you're either... You're either humbled because you've been reminded that when God calls someone to himself, it has nothing to do with what they can offer. Or you might be thinking about the ways you struggle with with sinful boasting and and various insecurities. I was going to talk about insecurities for a second. I'm not going to say all insecurity is sinful, but it could be that sometimes insecurity is just wishing you had a reason to boast. So right now we might be feeling a little discouraged, a little convicted, a little challenged, a little... Pinned in the corner. Who invited this guy? (laughs) It could be discouraging. Or, or it could be right where we need to be for pursuing a unified standard for boasting. (laughs) This could put us right where we need to be to unite around a common standard for boasting and a better standard for boasting. Right? Well, Paul has good news and Paul has bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. God doesn't call anyone on the basis of what they have to boast about. That's the bad news, okay? Listen closely, here's the good news. God doesn't call anyone on the basis of what they have to boast about. (laughs) That's good news. That's actually very good news for us, Christian. That we're not accepted by God because of anything we have to boast about. That, That we're not required to contribute something and and get there on our own somehow. That's awesome news. That's the emphasis Paul is going for here. His aim isn't to tell the Corinthians how ashamed of themselves they should be. He's not merely saying, stop all of your boasting. Though he's saying that, of course. He's calling the Corinthians and us, Grace Bible Church, he's calling us to remember our calling and how we were called and what we were called by. It is good news that God does the choosing. It is good news that God does the calling. Because what do we have to offer that He would want to receive from us? At all. If it's not just our boasting and our sin and our pride. Isaiah 66, 2, you've heard it. It says, And this is the one to whom I will look, says Yahweh. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's good news because we don't have anything better to offer. And so that's why God's calling proves his wisdom. It's also why his choosing proves his wisdom. On to our second point here. The wisdom of God makes disunity in his church unthinkable because one of his calling. God only calls to salvation those whom he has chosen for salvation. God only draws to himself those whom he has called to be drawn to himself. So the choosing, the choosing proves God's wisdom. God's choosing proves God's wisdom. How is this different from calling? Calling, you could say, was about when God draws us to himself, but choosing comes before calling. Choosing comes before calling. Choosing is when God handpicks who will be saved. Theology, grenade, predestination. 
Read verses 27 to 29 along with me. That's where this point is coming from. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Okay, with those verses, there's a point to make and there's a warning to give from these verses. The point to make is very simple. What we would expect in any fleshly terms to be the basis for one's choosing, God says, not me, I do things differently. That's the point to make. God chose what is foolish, weak, low, and despised. God chose what is equal to nothing. Primarily the means of the gospel to save people and then even the humble and lowly people that he saves. These are in direct contrast to verses 20 and 26, which list the wise, the scribe, the debater, the powerful, those of noble birth. It's in direct contrast to those. So the point to make is God chose the foolish because the wise thought the cross was a foolish way to save the world. God chose the weak because the strong thought they were powerful enough without God. God chose the low and despised because the high and mighty didn't care to lower themselves to the level of a crucified man. And so, God knowing man's heart would become like this since before time began. Because he knew sin would enter the world, he he designed it this way, designed his plan for salvation in such a way that no man could be better off without him. He designed his plan for salvation in such a way that no man could be righteous without him. In such a way that, that no man could be sufficient without him. No man could possibly attain eternal life and the forgiveness of sins without him. This is how he designed it. This is God's wisdom. That's the point he's making. And so a warning comes pretty naturally out of all of that. A warning comes naturally. The warning is, in one word, shame. Verses 27 to 29. Talk about that. He shames the strong. He shames the wise. He brings to nothing things that are. The warning is shame. Not a moral, social shaming. In fact, this this type of shame, as, as you hear it, as you think about it, it's the type of shaming that is understood with eschatological implications, judgment implications. We see this language all over the place in Scripture. This, this, this kind of warning, this kind of judgment speak. Psalm 31.17, you could write that down. Psalm 31.17, O Lord, let them Uh, Let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame, and let them go silently to Sheol. Or Isaiah 41.11. Behold, all who are enraged against us shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against him shall be as nothing and shall perish. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.8. The lawless one will be revealed who comes by the power of Satan, and the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's the kind of thing that this shame in this passage is talking about. Man's wisdom is going to be brought to shame. It's going to be brought to nothing. It's going to be obliterated. That's what's going to happen. That's the warning. That's what the passage is talking about when it says, God chose the things that are not The lowly to bring to nothing the things that supposedly are. The things that are great, God is choosing the lowly things to bring them to nothing. 
to shame them. Namely, the gospel, Jesus Christ. The wisdom of the world is crushed by the wisdom of God. In a later passage, 1 Corinthians 2.6, it sticks very close to this language. The wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age, are doomed to pass away. doesn't get much clearer than that. <laughs> they are doomed to pass away. Why will God do this? Why is this his plan? Why has he designed it this way? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not in themselves, at least. Believe me, there, there will be boasting in the presence of God one day, but it won't be about us. It will be about Jesus Christ. It will be about the Lamb who was slain for the nations. It will not be about us. And this is how it's always been. This is how God has always worked. It's always been about God's glory so that man has no reason to boast. It's always been about God's choosing. It's been about His choosing and His saving. It's been about how He sanctifies, how He grants success. Let me give you a few examples. That This is how God has always worked. You could write down Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. Here's what God says to Israel, his chosen people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And you might think Israel's starting to feel pretty good about themselves as they hear Moses say this to them. And then he says, It wasn't because you were more in number, it wasn't because you were a great nation. It wasn't because of that that God chose you. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. Okay, God, then, then why did you do it? And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. Here's why he did it that way. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath. I said I would do it this way, and I'm doing it this way. And I'm loving you. And I get all the glory for that. God speaking, not me. <laughs> In saving. So he does it. It's about God in his choosing. It's about God in his saving. It's about God. Think about Psalm 106, verse 8. Right after the psalmist recalls how God called Israel out of Egypt, despite their unfaithfulness to him, it says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. It's always been about God and saving and choosing. How about in sanctifying? It's been about God. Isaiah 48, 11. God tells Israel he has refined them like fire to purify them through trials. Why does God let us go through trials? To purify us. To purify them through trials. And then he tells them why he's done this. He says it two times. For my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to no other. I'm going to purify you because you're my image bearer and I've saved you to become a greater image bearer. And I'm not going to let my glory be shared with anything else. How about in our successes? This is a fun story. It's all about God even in our success. Take the story of Gideon's 300 men in Judges chapter 7. God takes Gideon's army down from 22,000, which is a pretty sizable army, Decent. Takes Gideon's army down from 22,000 men and soldiers down to 300 to go up against 135,000 Midianites. And how do the 300 defeat the 135,000 Midianites? They blew trumpets. (laughs) 
They broke jars. They lit torches. And the Midianites turned on each other and destroyed each other. What on earth? (laughs) Now, do you think Gideon went back to his homies back home and said, you guys, you wouldn't believe what I did. We blew trumpets. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He didn't do that. No, this is a strange, weak way to to have a victory. Why? So that God would receive all of the credit. (laughs) That's just what God told me to do. And it worked. (laughs) So in choosing and saving and sanctifying and success, God always works in a way that should result in His glory. Verse 28 and 29 say the same thing. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's the so that, so that no flesh may boast in the presence of God. And really to to say just that it's so that God would get the credit, that's true, but it's kind of an, an understatement. It's really to show how incredibly great and powerful and wise and good God is above and beyond the wisdom of the world. It's clearly true in the salvation we receive as well, because 1 John 2.12 says, even our sins were forgiven for his namesake. Your sins are forgiven for Christ's namesake, for God's name's sake. So where should we aim our boasting? Our third point answers that question. Again, the main idea, the wisdom of God makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. And boasting can be a positive thing if the object of our boasting is worthy, right? So Christ proves God's wisdom. Christ proves God's wisdom. That is our third point. And this is where we find our unified standard for boasting. That Christ proves God's wisdom. Read verses 30 to 31 with me. And because of him, you are in Christ. Because of God, you are in Christ. Who became to us wisdom from God. Now imagine... a. A colon after wisdom from God, and now the next three phrases are a description of that wisdom. Okay? In the Greek, that's kind of how it plays out. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. What does that wisdom look like? Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What does this show us? It shows us, <laughs> if it wasn't clear already, that. If we're boasting in anything other than God himself, we have little to no understanding of the grace of God. We, we, have, we, need our, we need our knowledge and understanding of the grace of God enhanced. When verse 30 says, and because of him, it's saying, from God. It's the same language we see within the rest of the chapter. Chapter 1, verse 21, saved by God. Verse 24 and 26, called by God. Verse 27 and 28, chosen by God. In other words, again, chosen, predestined, elected by God. How did God do all this? Why why is it even possible in the first place that anyone could ever be chosen and called and saved by God? Answer, and from God, this is a gift, from God, you are in Christ. God gave this to you. From God, you are in Christ. Christ is the reason all of this is possible. 
Why is Christ so important? Goodness gracious, what a, what a great question. Why is Christ so important? Verse 30 answers that question. It's because while man was running around in a frenzy, trying to make his own wisdom work somehow, Christ became to us wisdom from God. He appeared as the wisdom of God. While we're out running with our heads cut off like a chicken, Christ shows up as the wisdom of God. He says, here it is. It's what you've been trying to figure out. And it's better. But notice, this isn't just saying Christ shows us what it really means to be wise. That's not what it's saying. It's not showing us, saying Christ shows what it's like to really be strong and smart and influential, though that's absolutely true. He does do, he does do that. No, the, 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 the wisdom that Christ is revealing brings wisdom, uh, man's wisdom to absolutely nothing. This is, if you think of Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, it's that kind of wisdom. The wisdom that Christ reveals. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's this mystery hidden for ages in God that needed to be brought to light for everyone. This is the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3 says, which brings to shame not only self-proclaimed wise men like us, but rulers and authority and authorities in the heavenly places. This is the wisdom of God that shatters the power of sin in our life. This is the wisdom of God in Christ that obliterates the plans of the evil one. It's the wisdom of God that destroys the bonds of slavery. And it drowns the fear of death in the depths of God's grace. That's what the wisdom of God accomplishes in Christ Jesus. Let me just show you one more thing from verse 30. I told you to imagine a colon after that phrase, wisdom from God, in verse 30. And the next few phrases spell out what that wisdom looks like. That wisdom spelled out looks like righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Brothers and sisters, here's what that's talking about. That's talking about the wisdom of God applied to our souls in the past. That talks about the wisdom of God applied to our souls in the present. And that talks about the wisdom of God applied to our souls in the future. This is an eternal wisdom that God is revealing to us. The righteousness of Christ given to us, those three words, look at them. The righteousness of Christ given to us when we were regenerated to new life in Him. Past. Sanctification in Christ sustained in us as we're kept secure in the strength of His hands. Present. Redemption in Christ fully realized and completed when Christ, who is our hope, appears and we appear with Him in glory. Future. Past, present, future, the wisdom of God. Tell me, what fleshly wisdom gives eternal security like that? It doesn't. So what could a person possibly boast of when their wisdom is put up next to that? (laughs) We have nothing to boast in. God brought to nothing the things that thought they were something. And then when He brought us to nothing, He gave us everything. An eternal treasure. That's grace. So it's no wonder then, when you think of the book of Revelation, the glory of that book, it's no, no wonder, think of Revelation 7, it's no wonder when we think about these things that all of the angels in heaven, as they, as they survey 
the nations that have gathered before the Lamb who was slain. What do they say? They boast in their Savior. They boast in their crucified Lamb. And they say, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So the only right question to ask now is, have you been brought to nothing before God? This is a church that doesn't mean we're all saved. (laughs) Have you been brought to nothing before God? Because the only way we receive everything in Christ is if we're first (laughs) empty-handed. We come to Him empty-handed. say, it's Christ. I I can only come to you through Christ. That's all I got. God says, good, because I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins because of him. Have you been brought to nothing? Have you given up your pride? Have you given up your boasting? Whatever it's in, I don't know. If you're not walking with Christ, if if you've not acknowledged him as your Lord and your Savior, have you been brought to nothing before him? It's charged to the unbelievers in this room. Our good and gracious king needs nothing from you as payment. (laughs) It's good news. Receive his grace. It is given to you in Christ. Believers, can you imagine the disunity we will avoid if Christ is our unified standard for boasting? If we really want to make disunity unthinkable in the church, according to the wisdom of God, then there's a couple types of questions that should be on our minds and on our mouths as often as we speak. Here's two questions just to leave you with really briefly, and then I'm done. Very simple question. In any given moment, am I boasting in the Lord? There's not a situation that doesn't apply to. Question number two. Am I helping somebody else boast in the Lord? That's going to that's cause unity in a church. Love God, love neighbor. Simple way to do that, help each other remember everything we have received in Christ, past, present, future. And that will help us learn how to boast in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for your wisdom. There is no one like you, O God. We acknowledge that we fall short of your glory. We acknowledge that we fall short of even praising you as we ought, boasting in you as we ought, Lord. Forgive us for this. Teach us how to walk like your son, whose food was to do the will of God who only said what he received from you. God, teach us to be like your son. Teach us to live for your glory and for the glory of the cross. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.